Yeah, so, um, so uh, what happened was, is after the service, uh, Jesse Rodriguez came up and said, hey, I can make you a chart. And so I said, okay, because I don't have time to make charts. And uh, that's not my skill set. So anyways, he came over this morning or this afternoon after I took my nap. And um, he uh, put this together. And uh, what it shows there is that when Jesus uh, was celebrating the Passover with the disciples, it happened on the 14th, according to the north, northern Jewish reckoning. So you can see that top line is northern Jewish reckoning. You can see that uh, sunrise and uh, to sunrise is the 14th Passover. Jesus sent them out in the morning of the 14th at sunrise. And then they served him by going out, preparing the feast and uh, getting their lamb. And then, of course, they went and in that little pink, the little pink splotch there on the 14th, that's when the lambs are slain in the temple. They slayed their lamb and then they went and celebrated the Passover feast on the Passover according to that northern reckoning. And then uh, later, Jesus uh uh, on the, if you look at the bottom line, the green line, notice that the 14th starts at sunset for those who are in the south and followed the law of Moses exactly. And um, so the 14th actually overlaps 12 hours uh, between that time, between sunset and sunrise. There's a 12-hour overlap, and so Jesus then. Um, instigates the first communion at that time and then what happens is 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 he gets betrayed and crucified and so when uh, when he is crucified um what happens is is look at the bottom line uh it's still the 14th according to the biblical time scheme and he is right at the beginning of that little pink when the lambs are being slayed in slain in the temple Christ is slain for us as the Lamb of God. And then, of course, the Jews, uh, following the Exodus chronology and what we learn from Exodus, end up uh, celebrating their Passover actually on the 15th, the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. This then solves the mystery of why John tells us that when Jesus was being crucified, tried and crucified, the Jews who lived around Jerusalem, the Jewish leaders, were preparing to celebrate the Passover that night. And this explains why um, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, following the disciples who were from Galilee, northern Jews, they were celebrating the um, Passover on the 14th up on the blue chart there from the sunrise to sunrise reckoning rather than sunset to sunset. Now, if that still doesn't make sense to you, oh, well. But it just does, it does help us understand one of the, the major anomalies. And so if you have your Bible, please turn to Luke 22 again. If not, you, maybe you can find one in the pew because we're actually going to finish this morning's sermon, uh, today, Lord willing. So we looked first at the first point, which was take a hike and prepare the Passover because Jesus tells them to head out. They had to go over the Mount of Olives, down into the Kidron Valley, find this man with the pitcher, follow him to uh, a house. And there in the house uh, was all prepared uh, a large room for Jesus, the disciples, and probably others to celebrate the Passover. They then, uh, in order to prepare, had to get their lamb, had to get over to the temple to have it sacrificed during that two hour time slot and make sure that they could get it sacrificed and then get it prepared so they could eat it that night. And so that's what's happening in our text. That's what we looked at this morning in some rather exotic and elaborate detail. So tonight we're going to look at the second point, which is take your last drink with me. Look at verse 14 of Luke 22. And here we read, when the hour had come, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. Here we see that Jesus was not sitting in a chair like Leo, uh, uh, um, or Leonardo da Vinci's uh, painting uh, with his disciples and the chair on sawhorses. Um, he was reclining, as was the co- according to the custom. There were, uh, you know, pads and uh, cushions and things around a very low table, and you would lean on those, and that's how um, you would sit down. Uh, chairs kind of came along later. 
And if you look at verse 15, and he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Now, what's interesting here is Jesus tells us in this saying that he's, he's been anticipating this. He's been anticipating this. And this is important because it teaches us that Jesus is longing, has been longing to eat this particular Passover with his disciples before he suffers, which means he knows he's going to suffer. And he has made sure, he has worked and made sure that he stayed alive so that he didn't die, so that he could eat this last meal. This is Jesus's last meal before he dies, the Passover meal, which is just kind of amazing that, you know, if you were the Lamb of God, it is amazing that you would actually eat as your last meal, the Passover meal. Kind of handy, isn't it? And that's what Jesus is doing. He knows he's going to die. He knows it's his last meal. He says he earnestly desires a word that means to long for or crave or desire. Sometimes it's used in an evil uh, way. When speaking of evil, it means to lust, to have a lustful desire. But here it's used in a good way, as it is in some texts, a, a holy longing uh, or desire for something. And the word suffer describes emotional as well as physical physical suffering. Now, a lot of times when we think of Jesus, we think of him, you know, going through a lot of physical pain, you know, beating, um, being, you know, crown of thorns on his head. But you need to realize that he suffered emotionally a great deal, a great deal. Now, consider being Jesus for a moment and imagine knowing that in less than 24 hours, you are going to die. I mean, think about it. You know you're going to die. Not only do you know you're going to die, you're going to be betrayed by, quote, one of your friends. And you're going to be arrested and beaten and scourged and tried unjustly, spat upon, struck, mocked, Rejected by your people, traded for a criminal, a crown of thorns shoved on your head. You know that soon you will be carrying your own cross through the streets while your own people that you came to save jeer at you. That eventually they're going to pound nails through your hands and feet. And they're going to crucify you between two criminals. One of them is going to mock you on his way to hell. And you know all of this before it happens. And now you're in this room with your friends and you're celebrating the Passover with them. You will be leaving your disciples whom you love to the end behind. And all of this is going through Jesus's mind as he is eating, as he is talking as he is having a conversation. I mean, most of us would just be fetal in position in the corner, you know, fearing what was going to come upon us. Jesus, though, says, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover meal with you before I suffer. It must have been very bittersweet as the disciples were cracking jokes. Whenever you get a bunch of guys together, they do that. It's just like, you just can't help it. Especially if you're happy. And so they're eating, they're laughing, and Jesus knows this huge, horrendous thing is going to happen to him starting in just a short time. He knows it's going to happen. And yet, he doesn't ruin it for them and go, guys, man, you gotta freak out with me. I'm gonna die. They're gonna be mean to me. He just says, I'm glad I'm here with you. I've desired this. Look at verse 16. Jesus continues, for I say to you, I shall never eat. I shall never again eat it. That is the Passover until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Jesus is going to die and he's never going to eat the Passover again until the kingdom, the kingdom 
The Passover will be celebrated in the kingdom. People will remember in the kingdom how God delivered the people of Israel from Egypt and slavery and bondage in Egypt. And they're going to celebrate that in the kingdom. And Jesus says, this is my last time until I rule and reign on earth. Look at verse 17. And when he had taken the cup and given thanks, he said, take this and share it among yourselves. Here Jesus encourages all the disciples to take a drink of wine. Luke mentions two cups, one here in verse 17, another again in verse 20. Some think that this one and the other one are the same. I think they're different. I think Jesus is just rejoicing. He's celebrating. He's kind of offering a toast and says, drink this, guys. Celebrate with me. This is my last moments with you, and I'm not going to get all stressed out and mopey and ruin our last meal together. You can see that Jesus is holding back the anguish of his soul, which kind of comes out in the Garden of Gethsemane a little bit later. He's holding it back out of love for his disciples because he wants this last meal to be pleasurable, a good memory for them. And so he is already sacrificing, though he's suffering on the inside, he's holding back. Later in the... Haggadah, the Jewish instruction book for the Passover Seder, when it's written several hundred years later, 500 years later, they're going to say that that four little cups or drinks of wine need to be taken to remember four different aspects of God's redemption, that God redeemed them from Egypt, that God redeemed them from slavery, that God redeemed them to demonstrate his power and that God redeemed them to make them a chosen nation. Well, look at verse 18. Jesus continues and says, For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the kingdom of God comes. So not only is he not going to eat the Passover meal again, he's not going to drink any wine. He's not going to celebrate By drinking any wine until the kingdom, the kingdom, that time when after he comes back in his second coming glory, he establishes his glorious kingdom on earth. And they're probably thinking in their minds, yes, Jesus is going to wipe out Rome tomorrow. I mean, they thought that they thought that the kingdom was going to come right away. Jesus was going to conquer Rome and then establish his kingdom. We even see the same thing after he rises from the dead. And they say, is it that this time you're going to establish your kingdom? They're still thinking, well, yeah, it's been a little while here. But now, now they're thinking, when is it going to be? And they have no idea that there's going to be a very long time before it happens. We're still waiting. And though he told them that he was going to be crucified, we read, learned earlier in Luke that it says, and the truth was hidden from them. God purposely hid the truth from the disciples so that they wouldn't freak out that Jesus was going to die in order to be kind to them. Because you know what would have happened? They all would have like, you know, hogtied Judas. They all would have said, we're not going in there. You'll be ambushed. And they would have all, you know, had swords to protect Jesus and fight to the bitter end. And, you know, so it was hidden from them. But the next day, Jesus would give himself up to be crucified for the sins of the world. Imagine what the feast, though, would be like in Jesus's kingdom. Imagine that you and I, if you know Christ, we are going to celebrate the Passover and communion with Jesus in his kingdom. Is that cool? That is so cool. I mean, you know, I don't know if you've seen that poster of the, the there's a poster of a like a table that just kind of goes on forever. And it's all decked out. Yeah, I don't know what it's going to be like, but man, it sounds good. To eat the Passover and to celebrate communion with Christ in his kingdom, it's going to happen. Wow. Third, 
Jesus says, take this bread to remember my body broken for you. Now, I think he is instituting uh, communion, the Lord's Supper. He talks about the cup just because he's giving that. He's saying, I'm not going to drink this anymore. But now he is instituting uh, the, the bread broken for you. Look at verse 19. And when he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and said to them, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And so Jesus takes some unleavened bread, which is the only kind they were allowed to have, this hard, brittle bread with no yeast in it. And he takes it and he breaks it and breaks it and breaks it. And he's breaking it into pieces so they can each have a piece. And he's saying, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to let my body, my perfect body, which is not cursed, doesn't have a taint of sin upon it. And I'm going to give it to be broken, broken, broken for you. Jesus did not, as the Roman Catholic Church teach, transform the bread into his literal body, nor as Lutherans teach it, did he somehow infuse in that bread his special presence and impart some special grace either. The bread was bread, a symbol of something to remind us of something great. The bread is not great. Christ is great. And though sinless, though free from guilt, he would offer his body in substitution for us. You know, we need our bodies to function. And when you're young, sometimes you don't think about this. You just think, oh, I can stay up all night. I can eat junk food. I can just do whatever. You know, I'm impervious. And unless you like get into some major accident or something, you don't find out until you get older that, you know, I wish my body worked like it used to. You start appreciating your body more when it quits working like it's supposed to. Jesus is the unblemished lamb. He has a perfect body, a sinless body without defect. And he's going to offer it up. I always think of that text in Isaiah 53 whenever I partake of communion. Isaiah 53 verses 5 and 6. But he was pierced through for our transgression. He was crushed. For our iniquities, the chastening of our well-being fell on him and by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray and each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Then he goes on to say in verse 10, but the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days. The good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. God will look on Jesus whom he is crushing and then his justice will be satisfied as he looks upon his own son and crushes his own son. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong. Because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with transgressors, yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for transgressors. I mean, that is such a great text. I just think of it every time I have communion, I think of that text. Now imagine with me for a second. Um, going into some sort of like big metal factory where they have big giant hammers that pound out steel into flat sheets. Imagine just saying, well, I'm going to take my hand and thrust it into the hammer. So it's just smashed to smithereens. Or maybe thrusting your arm in there. So your whole arm is just mashed off. Or jumping into the hammer. Imagine that. Imagine, uh, you know, jumping headlong into a live volcano, just right into the lava. Or maybe into one of those, you know, tree chippers that just shreds things into a million pieces instantly. You're thinking, man, you're, you're, you'd be crazy to do that. Well, what if somebody was holding some friends of yours hostage... And said, listen, I'm going to kill him unless you 
jump in to the hammer, the volcano, the chipper shredder. Now that would kind of make it a little different, wouldn't it? Now you would have to decide if you were going to give your life in substitution for some friends of yours. And the cause would be not suicidal, but more noble. No greater love can any man have than this, than that he laid down his life for a friend. It would be an ultimate expression of love for you to give up your life for someone else. But imagine that even if you said yes, imagine the fear that would come upon you. Thinking, man, I, I got to jump onto the hammer. Man, I got to get into the volcano. Yeah, you hear that big chipper going, and you're thinking, okay, um, I need to jump in. Your your fear of pain, your fear of death, your fear of just losing your life, your natural instinct to stay alive would just be barking at you, wouldn't it? It would be intense. Even if you followed through, though, it would be relatively quick and painless. It would be like that done. You'd be smashed to smithereens. You would be, you know, vaporized. Uh, and boiled in a second, you would be ground up into little bits in a moment. But what if you knew you were going to be beaten and then mocked and spat upon and scourged until the flesh was torn off your back and sides and belly? What if you knew they were going to shove a crown of thorns on your brow. What if you knew that you were going to have to carry your own cross through the streets of Jerusalem on that ripped up back while people jeered at you? What if you knew you were going to have nails driven through your hands and feet and then you were going to be dropped into a hole on this cross? And hanging on that cross, the flesh would be tearing through your hands. And every time you wanted a breath, you had to push up on your feet, which would tear the flesh in your feet just so you could breathe. What if you knew you then were going to have to bear the sins of the world? And that for a moment, you would be isolated from your father. What if you knew all of that? That is just... That would be unbearable couldn't do it i mean to volunteer for that one is like who could do it christ why out of love for you out of love for me christ did that and more and he not only did it for his friends he did it for his enemies While we were yet enemies, Christ died for us. He did it for those who were hostile to him, who were lambs gone astray, for those who were sick, spiritually speaking. He volunteered for a slow, agonizing death for you. And so when Jesus says, this is my body, and starts breaking that bread and hands it out, This is what he wants us to remember when we celebrate communion. That Jesus gave his body to be broken for us. A demonstration of his love for us. It just reminds reminds me of that song, Amazing Love. How can it be that thou, my God, would die for me? I mean, that's just amazing, isn't it? Secondly, knowing Jesus gave his body uh, really should drive you to want to please him, right? He says, do this in remembrance of me. And so what? Well, it should make us want to please him. I mean, mothers sacrifice for their children and their children love their mothers. You know, if somebody sacrificed you, what if a friend at work said, you know what? I was offered this promotion. I told the boss I didn't want to take it that I wanted you to have it, and now you're going to get it. Well, I mean, wouldn't that make you go, man, thanks. You know, what if you were dying and you needed a kidney and somebody that you didn't even know said, you know what, 
I'm the right blood type. I'm going to give you one of my kidneys. And then you get to live and not have to be on dialysis. I mean, wouldn't that make you just think, thanks. Wouldn't that be like your lifelong buddy old pal? And yet what did Jesus do? Jesus gave his body so that we could be saved from hell, from eternal torment day and night forever and ever. And it should cause us to worship him and obey him and serve him. It should motivate us to just love him from our heart and want to please him in every respect of our life. Because if we don't, what kind of people are we? What kind of person has somebody do that much for them and say, yeah, that person deserves hell big time. Thomas Watson says a person like that is a beast with a man's head. And this is why we remember Jesus' body broken for us. Because it motivates us to love him, serve him, worship him, praise him, seek him. For he says, take this cup to remember my blood shed for you. Look at verse 20. And in the same way he took the cup after supper, uh, after they had eaten... And the said, saying, this cup, which is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. Now, Matthew and Mark also include the phrase, this is the blood of my covenant. So it's just turned around a little bit. Now, why do you think that Jesus mentions this new covenant? What is a covenant? And why would he even mention it? I mean, why bother? Well, first of all, you need to understand... A little bit about blood. Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11. And this is uh, when they're instituting the, the day of atonement. And he, he's talking about why they have to sacrifice and the purpose behind sacrifice. And this is a key verse. Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11 reads, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. You drain out an animal's blood, you drain out its life. This is why there were blood sacrifices. The animal's neck was slit, the carotid artery was cut, the blood would gush out, and with it, the animal's life. It would die a pretty quick death. Because it lost its blood. It lost its life. And this is why the phrase shedding blood is used as a synonym in the Bible for death. Why? Because if you shed somebody's blood, you shed their life. The life of the flesh is in the blood. Secondly, it's helpful to understand what a covenant is and how they were made in the Old Testament. Now, whenever you um, go to the Old Testament, there's all kinds of covenants. You find little agreements and all kinds of things going on there. And really, the Hebrew word for covenant means to cut a covenant. And thinking, why is that? We'll, we'll get there in a second. And there are really several kinds of covenants. One kind of covenant is called a bilateral covenant. Bi meaning two, lateral, between two parties. This is a covenant where two parties enter into an agreement where they both agree to do certain things so the covenant won't be broken. It's between two parties. Like, um, listen, uh, um, uh, I won't graze my cattle on your land if you don't craze your cattle on my land. Okay? You both have an agreement. Or I will make the payments on my car as long as you don't repossess it. Okay? You both enter into agreement. Okay? That's a bilateral covenant. Each of the parties involved in the covenant are responsible to perform. Otherwise, the covenant is broken. Then there is what is called a suzerain vassal covenant or treaty and that is when a suzerain a king makes a covenant with one of his vassals that is one of the people under his authority example david we know when he was king conquered all the nations around jerusalem well he didn't just wipe them all out what he did is he'd go there his army would beat up their army he'd gather all the people in the city square and say okay this is the deal you make a covenant with me and you pay me 20% of all of your produce, everything that you produce every year, I will protect you. You give me the, the produce and we won't kill you now. 
And then they all think, well, let's think about it. Um, let's see, do we want to die or not? Of course, they say, okay, okay. You know, granted, then they end up paying for some protection and to save their life. This is why David became so exceedingly wealthy because he was so amazing a military leader that all the nations around Jerusalem were paying what was called tribute to Israel. And when Solomon became king, David had stockpiled all of this gold and silver and and wood and stone and all of this from all these nations who are paying tribute. So that is another kind. There's a third kind, and that is called a unilateral covenant. That is a covenant. It means uh, one binding party. It's still made between two parties, but only one party is binding. And that is, for instance, like the covenant God made with Noah. You remember what happened after the flood? They get together, and God says to Noah... Um, uh, I'm going to make a covenant with you and put my, my, the rainbow in the sky as a remembrance. And there's no stipulations. There's no, you do this and I do that and you do this and I do that and you do this and I do that. It's just, I'm going to do this. God just makes a promise, a covenant. Remember when God made a covenant with Abraham in Genesis 15. If you remember the story, Abraham fell asleep. He put Abraham asleep. And then the, there were some animals. And God says, you know, remember, get the, several animals, a, a turtle dove and a cow and a ram and a goat and a pigeon and, and cut them in two and spread them out so they're all spread apart. And this is what you would do. You would then walk through the ant, between the animals, both parties usually would. And what you'd be saying is, as you're walking through these severed animals, if I break my side of the covenant, may I become like these animals cut in two. So the phrase to cut a covenant came from that concept. But when God makes his covenant to Abraham that he would bless him, that he would bless his descendants, that in his seed all the nations of the earth would be blessed, and that they would receive the promised land as an everlasting possession, when he makes that covenant with him, what's amazing is he says, Abraham, nine at time. And he goes through alone. He makes a unilateral covenant. Now, because God is perfectly faithful, anytime he makes a unilateral covenant, he always follows through. He has to. He's God. He can't break his word. And so those are the three different kinds of covenants. Those are some examples. And one of the most significant of all the unilateral covenants happens to be the new covenant. Turn to Jeremiah. Uh, no, wait, first turn to um, Hebrews. Turn to Hebrews. Let me turn to Hebrews first and show you this. If you know where Hebrews is, all you women have your Bibles worn out in that spot. But yeah, let me, let me show you in Hebrews chapter 6. Just um, the new covenant. First, I want to just show you the significance of of the Abrahamic covenant, because all the unilateral covenants are all kind of linked together. They all kind of have this thread that runs through them all. Since they're all based on God's unflinching faithfulness, they're all kind of tied together. So when you look at them, they're kind of all related to one another all the way back in the Old Testament. But here in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 13, this is what we read. For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself. You know, God didn't say, well, I swear by Baal. Or I swear by Abraham. He swore by himself because he was the greatest person he could swear by. Saying, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply you. And so having patiently waited, he, that is Abraham, obtained the promise that he got a child. For men... Swear by one greater than themselves and with them an oath given as confirmation is an end of every dispute. So they say, you know, I swear by God, let's say, or by the temple. They make an oath by something greater than them in order to appeal to the authority of their words they're speaking. That's what he's saying there. Verse 17. In the same way, God, desiring even more to show the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable of his purpose, interposed with an oath. So God actually 
swears by himself and he interposed with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things, what things are that? Well, first of all, just by God's word, because God's character is perfect and he's perfectly faithful. He doesn't need to swear an oath. He doesn't even need to make a covenant. He just says something and it has to come true. But but because he is infinitely faithful, we can always trust in anything he says. But in this instance, in order to make it doubly certain, it says, so that by two unchangeable things, both his word and the promise with the covenant, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. And he goes on to say a bunch of other cool things. But here, the point is, is that when God made the promise to Abraham, he not only made the promise, he swore by himself and made an oath. So that was doubly certain. So keep that in mind. So what about this new covenant? Now let's turn to Jeremiah and you can see it there. Jeremiah chapter 31. Jeremiah chapter 31 verse 31 is the key text on the new covenant, though it is mentioned in a few other places. Jeremiah 31. And this is so cool because you need to understand Jeremiah. Jeremiah is in a situation where the whole nation is gone to seed. They're being taken captive to Babylon. Jerusalem is being burned and sacked and destroyed. And and Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, is knowing all this. He's trying to warn them and has to live through all of this catastrophe. And they're going to spread to all the nations. The ten northern tribes have already been taken captive and spread out all over the place. And this is what we read in Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. There it is, with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. Now, when he made that covenant with Moses at Mount Sinai, it was a covenant, a bilateral covenant. They had to do certain things. God do certain things. If you do this, I'll bless you. If you don't do this, I'll curse you. Of course, they didn't do it. He cursed them. Verse 33. But this covenant, this new covenant, which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and on their heart I will write it and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they will not teach again each his man and his neighbor saying, you know, know the Lord for they're going to all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. I will remember no more. Now here, what is amazing is God says, listen, you know what I'm going to do for you? I'm going to make a new covenant and I'm going to be the only binding party. So you can't break it. It's just all good for you and all good for you. I'm going to put my law in you. I am going to then make you into my people And you are then going to have me as your God. And I'm going to forgive everything you did that was ever wrong. Now that is cool. Now Ezekiel talks about this in a little bit more detail in Ezekiel 36. If you want to turn over to Ezekiel 36 to the right. Some chapters. Ezekiel 36. Verse 24 to 32. Ezekiel 36, and we read this. Ezekiel speaks of the effects of Israel entering into the new covenant, and he says this. For I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the lands and bring you into your own land. So he's saying, I'm going to gather you all these places you've been spread because when they broke the covenant, one of the curses was, I'm going to drive you into other lands. So God was faithful. Then I'm going to sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean. In other words, Not I'm not going to give you a bath, literally, but I am going to give you a spiritual bath. In other words, I'm going to forgive you. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I'm going to make you holy, is what he's saying. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. Think about that. The spirit here is just a new desire. Not the Holy Spirit yet. It's coming. A new heart, a new, a new desire to, I want to please God. 
I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. In other words, you think about before you came to Christ and maybe you just, you didn't want God in your life and you didn't want to hear it and you're just kind of hard hearted. He takes that out of the way and gives you a soft, teachable heart. Verse 27, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances and you will live in the land that I gave to your forefathers so that you will be your, you will be my people and I will be your God. Now that covenant is like, yeah. So there's going to be a covenant someday and all the Jews knew about this covenant and they knew it's going to be a great covenant because God's going to cleanse them, forgive them, wash them, scrub them holy. He's going to put his law in their heart. He's going to put their spirit in his heart. He's going to make their heart of stone into a heart of flesh, a teachable heart, a soft heart, a heart that seeks the Lord. He's going to, having put his spirit in them, cause them, cause them to walk in his way. He's going to give them divine enablement so they end up walking in the way that he wants them to walk. And and you know what? When you're a sinner, it's like, bring it on. Now, I am tired of sinning. And God promises all of that. And so when Jesus is in the upper room and when he's celebrating this last Passover meal with his disciples and then he says, after the Jews had been waiting 600 years for this to come about, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. They probably cheered. They probably said, "Woo! Yeah! You know, it's like it's about time. You know, they're just waiting. They're waiting. They're so excited about, yes, yes, yes. You mean God's going to put his law on our hearts. He's going to give us his spirit. He's going to wash us clean. He's going to forgive us. He's going to cause us to walk in his way. We're going to be his people. He's going to be our God. Oh, yeah. I mean, it was like the coolest thing that they could ever think of. And Jesus says, it's here. It's here. I'm doing it now. The author of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 9 verse 16 and 17 when discussing the new covenant says for where a covenant is there must be of necessity the death of the one who made it. For a covenant is valid only when men are dead for it is never in force while the one who made it lives. Now what's interesting about the word covenants different in the in the New Testament as it is in the Old Testament but the word that appears here in Hebrews and the word that appears in Our text in Luke is a word that can mean covenant or testament or will. In other words, it's like a last testament or will. You write a will, right? And it's all ready, but what has to happen? You have to die before it goes into effect. And this is what Jesus uh, did in his death. This is what the author of Hebrews is talking about. When Jesus said, this is the new covenant in my blood, he had to shed his blood. He had to die so that it would take effect. In other covenants, animals were sacrificed as with in Abraham, as we talked about in Genesis 15. With the new covenant, Christ sacrificed himself. He uses his own blood to establish his own covenant. In Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 and 12, right before the text I just read, says, But when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Not temporary redemption, not temporary covering up of sin, but eternal redemption. No more sacrifices. I am the last sacrifice. This promise is for both Gentiles and Jews. And you say, well, but how do you know that? I mean, how are we, if we're Gentiles, how come we get to participate in a covenant that was given to Jews? I mean, how does that work? I mean, this was made, if you read the context, it was made to Abraham, the father of the nation Israel. We're Gentiles. We're the goyim, man. We're outside the, the pale. And what's interesting is we learn about this in Galatians 3. Turn there. Galatians chapter 3. Here we learn why we Gentiles get to participate in the promises given to Abraham. 
In Galatians chapter 3, verses 6 and following, Paul says this. Even so, Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Abraham did this before circumcised, before having the law. He believed God and God declared him to be righteous based off of his faith alone. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. If you have faith in Christ, you become a son of Abraham. The scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, all the nations of the earth will be blessed in you. When he made that promise to Abraham a long time ago, the father of the nation Israel, he also told Abraham that in you all the nations, which means all the Gentile nations, will be blessed in you as well as the Jews. So then those who are of faith, that is faith in Jesus Christ, are blessed with Abraham the believer. So get this. So what happens is, is when you place your faith in Christ, because Christ is the once for all sacrifice, you then become a partaker, a spiritual child, so to speak, of Abraham. You become an Israelite by faith, so to speak. In that you get to participate as a Gentile in the promises given to Abraham. It's amazing. And so when Jesus is in that upper room and he holds up the cup and says, this is the new covenant in my, my blood, that was a jackpot statement. The bells were going off. It was just like, you're, you're kidding me. No, it's happening. And this covenant has threads that go all the back way back through all the unilateral covenants the covenant made with david the covenant made with phinehas the covenant made with noah the covenant made in genesis three fifteen that the woman's seed would crush the serpent's head it just goes back through all of them and ties them all together and jesus did that when he that's why when you're sitting there on sunday morning or having communion and they're passing around you got your little cup and say okay you know this cup is the new covenant in my blood yeah yeah mm. No, it's huge. It's huge. It means you get salvation. You get forgiveness. You get the spirit. God gives you divine enablement to walk in his ways. He becomes your God. You become his people. That's what it means. All because of Christ shedding his blood for you. Well, then the final thing, and we'll wrap up here. Look at verse 21. Take a look around for a traitor. Our fifth point. But behold, the hand of one betraying me is on the table, uh, is with mine on the table. Judas is sitting next to Christ, and we know from the other gospel accounts that they heard this, and they were grieved, and they're saying, was it me, Lord? Is it me? And Judas, in order to blend in, says, is it me, Lord? So the disciples don't know who it is, because they're all saying the same thing, and they're all acting surprised. And Judas is such a good faker, he's like, what, me? Um, You know. Jesus said in Matthew and Mark's account, the one who dips with me in the bowl, um, our text says, uh, with mine on the table. Jesus saying, look, and look, it's the guy who's got his hand in the bowl right now with me on the table. But for some reason, they didn't expect Judas. They just thought, no way. And then he makes a very scary statement where he says, uh, for indeed the Son of Man is going to be betrayed. Notice, just as it has been determined, and just stop there. Notice we talked about the sovereignty of God orchestrating all these events. It was determined by God before the foundation of the world that Judas would betray Christ. He chose him specifically. He knew he was going to betray him. He orchestrated events so he could betray him just at the right time. He was chosen for that very purpose. And then the very scary statement, look at the middle of verse 22, but woe to the man by whom he was betrayed. It would have been good for him if he had not been born. What does this tell us? That even though God is sovereign, men are responsible. You are responsible to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. You are commanded to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. You are responsible to obey him, to serve him, to worship him out of love. And though God is sovereign, it does not mean that you can do whatever you want and blame God for every sin that you commit. No, you're still responsible, fully responsible for all the things that God tells you to do. And God is still sovereign. You say, well, how does that work? 
That's a whole series of sermons that we can't go in tonight. Satan put the temptation into Judas's way. Judas was eager, willing, and wanting to participate. And you may think, well, you know, I mean, how could he hold Judas responsible? I'll tell you why. Because all Judas's life, Judas wouldn't believe in God. And then when Jesus called him to follow him, for three years he lived with Jesus and he wouldn't believe in him. He kept hardening his heart, faking to be something he wasn't. Like a person who comes to church and fakes to be a Christian and says they're a Christian. They don't love God. They don't read their Bible. They don't pray. They don't give. They don't serve. That person doesn't love God. They're a traitor. They're a traitor. And then look at verse 23. And they began discussing among themselves which one it might be who was going to do this thing. Judas knew what he was going to do and Christ knew what Judas was going to do. But Judas was just blending in like a chameleon. The disciples never expected Judas. He was so honest, they thought, so meticulous, so faithful, trusted with the money, always there, always helpful, always serving, always blending in. Then you know what happens? You have to come back next Sunday. (laughs) Let me pray. Father, we are thankful uh, just again for being able to look at your word and learn about communion and its significance that you gave up your body knowing what was going to happen, a huge sacrifice to a torturous death for people who didn't even love you, who didn't want you, who rejected you, who weren't even born yet. And you shed your blood so that you could inaugurate in your blood the new covenant which would bring forgiveness, the Holy Spirit, your law written in our heart, a desire to please you, to walk in your way, divine enablement, and so many other things. Father, if there's anybody here who has never believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who's never repented of their sin, turned from their sin, and placed their faith in Christ alone for salvation, may you save them. And now, as we spend the last few moments of this service uh, welcoming new members, uh, may we be grateful for the work you have done in their lives and the work you have done in ours. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.